this is reading of Titus 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, that which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that are not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans always are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men which turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. That video clip that uh, we just watched uh, was produced by our very own James Kiskew uh, in November of 2012. Uh, part of uh, his work in the first half of his IVEP time with us, uh, serving alongside Turn as a staff person. It, uh, it tells an aspirational story. It doesn't tell a completed story. Um, Turn hasn't arrived yet. The Church of Jesus hasn't arrived yet. Um, it tells the aspiration of how a coalition of churches can collaborate. But, church... What are you going to do with it? How, how do we make this crazy thing work? Why, why is the church so messed up? We're beset with scandal. We're, we're known more for our vitriol than our love. We're, we've got divisions all over the place. Misguided sense of mission. We think that uh, the mission of the church ultimately is to put butts and benches and bucks and baskets. We uh, we lack a cohesion as the people of God. 
In reality, only three questions really matter. If we want to talk about theology, if we want to talk about how to be the church, only three questions really matter. The first question was the one Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked in the 1930s as the Nazis began to take over in Germany. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Who is Jesus for us today? The second question that flows from that is, what does Jesus want us to do? What does Jesus want us to do in this time and in this place? We can answer that really generally and really broadly and so broadly that it doesn't really mean anything. What does Jesus want us to do here and now? And then thirdly, how does Jesus want us to do that? The problem with the church in the West is that we ask those questions in reverse. We ask, how do we be church? Well, until we figured out who Jesus is, it's pretty irrelevant to try to figure out who church is. The first and foremost mission of the church is to understand its Lord. But of course, the problem is, in Christendom, We've created a Jesus that is very, shall we say, accommodating. We've marginalized him. We water down and privatize and explain away his teaching. Oh, that stuff in the Sermon on the Mount about loving your neighbor, it's, it's for the millennium. It, it's for that time in history when Jesus comes and, and swoops the church away and it won't really matter. Because we'll all be together anyway. So loving your enemy, not all that important in the real world. We've marginalized Jesus. We've watered his teachings down. We've explained him away. We've spiritualized Jesus. We worship him. We don't always follow him. We worship him as this remote kingly figure or this romanticized personal Savior. I was never made more aware of that as I was the year I was on a planning committee for a denominational youth assembly in the late 90s. And one of the young people in our discussion about worship raised his hand and said, could we please not sing so many songs about how Jesus is my boyfriend? And I just never thought of it that way before. And I thought, wow, we, we do spiritualize Jesus into this warm, romantic lover who we'd like to go on a date with. Or this royal, kingly figure who is remote and abstract and lord over us. And there is truth in both of those. But when that's the only truth we sing, we say something about who Jesus is for us today, and it's not grounded in our reality, in our experience, in the world as it is. And so we end up domesticating Jesus. We create ethical guidelines drawn not from his life and teachings, but from the Old Testament or from classical philosophy. Indeed, in the 5th century, the great doctor of the church, Augustine, basically said, you know, there, there are these awful 
Huns off to the north of us here in Rome, and they're going to do bad things to what's left of the Roman Empire. And, and Jesus says we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but the Huns, they're going to take over. So what we're going to do is we're going to create some rules about how to conduct warfare, and we're going to ignore Jesus. I mean, he says that really clearly in the city of God. It's like, what Jesus has to say about war is irrelevant to our situation today. Now, that's a theological position that the Christian church has taken for 1,500 years. Is it gospel? What do we do with all of that? Who is Jesus for us today? I want to suggest to us this morning that the church is messed up to the extent it's messed up because we've come to believe we can simultaneously honor and ignore Jesus. We can honor. We can worship Him. We can lift our hands and worship and praise His name and then turn around and ignore the hard stuff that He says. And look, I, I want to be clear this morning. I'm preaching to the choir. I... I I'm one of the biggest ignorers of what Jesus says that I know. So I'm not trying to single anybody out for their point of view on any issue. I'm just saying this is what we do as Western Christians. This is the air we breathe and the water we drink. We've come to believe we can honor and ignore Jesus at the same time. That some of the hard stuff he says, he's a little fuddy-duddy about that. The old guy, he didn't really mean it. So we just need to keep living the way we're living. I want to suggest that in a post-Christendom world, the world that we're inheriting, the world that the 20-somethings in our congregation are going to live into, the only three questions that matter is, who is Jesus? What does Jesus want us to do? How does Jesus want us to do it? Am I, am I sending Morse code through this system this morning? Is that what's going on here? Is that... Okay. Well, it's probably in good company then. <laughs> so... There is this little backwater book in the New Testament. One that we don't study very often. The book of Titus. The letter of Paul to Titus. The New Testament is a funny little library. It's not all theology. It's not all Romans 8. Titus is rhetorically called a letter of mandated principles. Titus is a memo. Paul to his subordinate, Titus, about how to proceed in the work that he's been called to. Now, I don't know about you, but I have read my share of memos and I've written my share of memos, and none of them rhetorically sing and dance great theology. Okay? Titus doesn't either. It's a memo. It's from Paul to Titus, 
Here's what I need you to do. Number one, number two, number three. If you're looking for amazing prose and uh, rhetorical flourishes that will move your soul, there are other places in the New Testament you want to read. Titus is about the nitty-gritty of being the church, of who is Jesus, what does Jesus want us to do, how does Jesus want us to do it. Titus is living out those questions. Titus is pastoring in Crete, a small island in the Mediterranean. There were Cretans at the day of Pentecost, and Paul got shipwrecked there once. So the New Testament is acquainted with this piece of turf. And now Titus, one of Paul's assistants, is gone there to take hold of the church that's struggling with the sense of its world. And what Titus 1 lays before us is the inability to further ignore Jesus. Like most churches, even before Augustine and the advent of Christendom, the churches in Crete struggled with the desire to honor Jesus and ignore the hard stuff Jesus said. They wanted it both ways. Just like us, they wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. And Paul begins to lay out the ways in which that will no longer happen in the Cretan church. He begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with a greeting. Now, this is the part of the New Testament that we read over the quickest, these greetings. It's like, why does Paul use so many words to say, hello, it's me, Paul? (laughs) Because he's trying to make a point about why he's writing this letter in the first place. You see, there wasn't an internet There weren't free emails, and there wasn't cheap postage back in the days of the Roman Empire. Letters took time and effort to write. And so you wanted to be clear from the outset about what you wanted to say. And so rather than reading past the introductions to the New Testament, it might make some sense for us to spend some time there and to try to listen to what is being said in those introductions because it sets the stage for the rest of what the book is about. And for Paul in Titus, it's about understanding that Jesus has called him to be an apostle. Paul's apostolic calling doesn't come because Paul's the smartest guy in the room or the best trained guy in the room or he has the confidence of the church in Jerusalem, or doesn't have the confidence of the church in Jerusalem. He is doing what he's doing because Jesus has called him to do it. His apostolic leadership is grounded in the person and character, the mission and message of Jesus. And so he he makes it clear, Jesus is our starting point understanding this this Jewish carpenter, this rabbinical teacher who taught 
and healed and preached and incurred the wrath of the religious leaders of his community and the, pe- and the leadership from Rome and ultimately was executed but didn't stay dead. One who rose again. This Jesus is the determinative fixture of history. He makes all the difference in the world. And Paul says that's where we start. Now, if you're maybe a bit more seeker-sensitive than Paul, you might want to back off some of that, some of those big, hairy, audacious truth claims and, you know, come up with 15 ways to have a happy marriage on Sunday morning. And eventually, the theory is you get to Jesus. But that's not what Paul does. Paul starts from the beginning, saying Jesus is the center point. Jesus is everything. Without Jesus, none of this makes any sense whatsoever. A couple weeks ago, I said, Jesus is God's selfie. You want to know who God is? You look at the Gospels and you discover Jesus. And you realize however the Hebrew folks interpreted God, interpreted Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus is the most complete revelation of who God is. So when we read the Old Testament, we go, what kind of crazy God is that? We have to read that tempered by the story of Jesus and the realization that Jesus is the most complete picture of who God is. Still not totally complete because we can't, ha- you know, we're a bit like Jack Nicholson. We can't handle the truth. At least in its totality. We can't get our head around it. We can get our head around Jesus. Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. And so Paul says, Jesus is the starting point. Jesus is the grounding point of our faith in our life, in his calling. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 2-4, through he unpacks the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised ages ago. Jesus is the starting point, but his reign is our goal. The reign of God in our midst. The reign that is now and not fully yet. The the hope that we have. Paul says, that's our purpose. Paul says, my ministry is to deal in hope. To point to the future and say, God is at work now and continues to be at work until such time as history comes to an end and he reigns complete and supreme. <clears throat> Excuse me. The cosmos that we broke through sin and that he fixed through Christ's death 
and resurrection is finally and fully repaired and made whole. And we live with that promise, Paul says. And that's just getting started with his words to Titus. Jesus is the starting point, and hope is our mission. Who is Jesus for us? From Paul's point of view, he's the starting point. He's everything. He's the center. And his whole purpose is to lead us and guide us into that hope. That what we see and smell and hear and taste and touch in this world is not the final answer, but that there is an ultimate set of answers. Brian just stepped out. He asked me this morning to talk about the meaning of life, and I just did, and he missed it. (laughs) So, so Lindsay, I need you to shame him for me. Okay. Jesus is the answer to life's mysteries. Now, we say that as Westerners with 15, 1600 years of abusive power behind that, and it falls on deaf ears. Because we have said it in ways that coerce people instead of invite people, that require people to behave in a certain way instead of call to people. We've used our power and authority, our wealth and our status over 16 centuries to make sure people complied with our views. And so when we say, Jesus is the answer, the world freeing themselves of those shackles says, yeah, not so much, because your track record isn't so good. Welcome to post-Christendom. And so Paul says to Titus, if Jesus is the answer, if he's the starting point and the center point and, and, and the one who leads us into hope for living, then this is what you need to do. And in chapter 1, he tells Titus to do two things. He says, appoint elders and teach the truth. Now we read Titus 1, 5 to 16, I think all wrong. We, we read that as prescriptive for all time. We, we read that and say, well, this is what pastors are supposed to be. Uh, they must be blameless, not arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Well, I... I don't score real well on that scale. And some of you don't either, so let's just not go comparing, okay? But hospitable, lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. Yeah, I don't do so well on that one either, and yeah, neither do you. If we read that as a set of prescriptions, none of us qualify for ministry. 
we read them as aspirational, as what we're urged to become, as what we're called to be as followers of Jesus, and we begin to realize that this is about wrestling with who we are in light of the hope that is Jesus. And so Paul's mandate, his first mandate to Timothy is appoint leaders who understand this. Appoint people who get it that this is a journey and a struggle and and a wrestling match with our souls to try to be followers of Jesus daily in life. That, That that's where all leadership starts. Leadership is not... Leadership is not about professional competency as much as I want it to be. And it isn't about charm or charisma, as much as you would like it to be. (laughs) It's about relational character. It's about who we are becoming. It's about how God is transforming us and calling us tenderly, lovingly, forcefully, agitationally, how God messes with us. Paul says, appoint leaders who get that. Appoint leaders who understand this is a struggle. And they're not perfect, but they're working at it. We we have in the Brethren in Christ Church this tradition of of holiness, of, of understanding that part of our faith is about is about becoming holy. But far too often we've taken that understanding of sanctification and we've locked it in. Um, my friend Bob Beatty at the Alta Loma Church tells a story of a, of a guy he was working with in a congregation back east before he came to California. And, and that gentle, loving, dear brother, saint in the church said, yep, it's been 50 years since I ever sinned. So I've lived a sanctified life for a half century. 50 years? Man, I can't go five minutes without sinning. Uh, my sanctification's really messed up. <clears throat> it's that idea that somehow we get sanctified and all is well for the rest of our lives. Nothing will ever go wrong. We won't ever lose it. Everything's going to be okay. But it isn't. Maybe that's your experience, and if it is, praise God. But it's never been my experience, and for most of you who I talk with, I don't hear that as your experience. I hear you wrestling with your faith all the time. And Paul says, that's who we want as leaders. We want people who are on the journey but haven't yet arrived because none of us do. We are works in progress, Paul says. And so he says to Titus, what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to be in the journey. He wants us to be wrestling with what it means to follow him.
But then he also moves on and says, yeah, and, and these leaders should also teach the truth. Now, again, we can read, especially Titus chapter 1 and go, wow, Paul, uh, could you tone down the kind of anti-Cretian rhetoric here? You know, you're not really, do you really love these people? Because you say some pretty harsh things about them, or at least you quote some people who said pretty harsh things about them. Um, 1.12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Paul had been to Crete, and he knew what Titus was getting into. These were not the easiest people in the world to work with. For the record, Bishop Perry never said anything like that about y'all when I came here. <laughs> Just want to be clear about that. Paul is wrestling with the reality that the world as it is and the world as it ought to be are two separate things. And that we're trying to move from one to the other. But we haven't arrived yet. And so he says to Titus, appoint people who can teach about how to get from there to here. About how to get from being folks who are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons to people who live in godliness. Whatever our spiritual gift is, whatever it is we think God has called us uniquely to do, at the core of that spiritual gift is the call to teach. In, in the broadest sense, not in the sense of delivering a curriculum or having a certain pedagogy, but it's the call to model and to invite others to imagine what their lives could be like if only. To hold each other accountable in that journey to become more than we were. To invite the Spirit of Christ to transform our lives, not just once, but daily, <laughs> hourly, moment by moment. How do we practice the faith? That's the essential agenda of the church. That's why we come here. We may not conduct the best practice in the world for the role that we have to play Monday through Saturday. But what we try to do here, what we aspire to do here on Sunday morning, is to practice godliness. Practice holiness. Practice community so that we can live it out during the week. This is the time when we run wind sprints. This is the time when we struggle at it. This is when we learn to fail well so that we can do better at game time the rest of the week. We practice the faith with each other. And so Paul's mandate to Titus is ramp up the church so that it can be a place where people practice to become godly. 
where people are no longer content with business as usual, but become people who are on the journey. Becoming what God calls us ultimately to be. In short, Titus 1, stop ignoring Jesus. Start taking Him seriously. So Titus 1 paints a picture of the agenda of the local body of believers. The church is God's missionary agency. And it's God's missionary agency that's called to focus on its local community, on its neighborhood. I, I tend to think of community as a faith word, like Drew talked about this morning. And I tend to think of neighborhood as the mission field. That we are called as the people of God to be a community that invites the neighborhood to experience the love and grace of Jesus with us and through us and alongside us and in spite of us. And so the church is a radically local body. We talk about the church universal, the church triumphant, the church like it's a thing out there. In reality, this is the church. And God's people gather together and say, yeah, let's practice this faith so that we can live it out in our neighborhood in the week ahead. And loving our city, loving our neighborhood becomes our mission. The slide there is borrowed from an, an event at Willow Creek Church where Bill Hybels declared, the local church is the hope of the world. Now, that's Bill Hybels, you know, Mr. Megachurch, Willow Creek, 15,000 members, great big shopping mall on the hill, not some little bitty church like us wringing our hands, going, we're so small, we can't do much. I mean, they're, they're bigger than some denominations, Willow Creek Church. And yet, Bill Hybel says, the local church is the hope of the world. What we do here Sunday morning at 10 a.m. is to practice being the hope of the world. That's a big, hairy deal, isn't it? And so the church is experienced as a local reality grounded in the integrity of Christ's calling, its leaders, and its message. And so there are three things that we need to be in order to be the local church that loves its neighborhood. First, we need to have the capacity to welcome a Jesus-centered future. We need to have among us the capacity, the willingness to say, whatever Christ is up to in our midst, whatever the future holds, we're, we're down with that. We're, we want to be ready for that. We don't know what that means all the time. In fact, we, we're, we're probably going to disagree with it half the time. But we want to go there. We want to struggle with that. We want to wrestle with that. We, we want what 
that Jesus has for us. We want His preferred future, not mine. Secondly, we need the character to lead the church relationally. We, we make a big deal about systems. I make a big deal about systems and strategies and concepts and plans and priorities, but really it comes down to are we in right relationship with each other? The old Mennonite bishop who would come the Sunday before communion and ask the parishioners, is it right with your soul? Are you at peace with your brother and sister? That's the central question. Are we relationally living together with the character to lead the church in that set of relationships so that the world sees us not as a place of division, not as a place that locks people out because they're different, but a place that welcomes people who are different, people who don't think like us, don't believe like us, don't act like us. We welcome them nonetheless and we journey with them. We don't compromise on who Jesus is, but we welcome everyone into that conversation. And then thirdly, to have the courage to teach in the face of controversy. I think Paul is such a fascinating guy because he simply assumes that in the church there will be disagreement. Now most of us, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've done my share of exit interviews, people who have left the church in my years in ministry. And one of the number one reasons I hear people leaving the church is they just couldn't get along with each other. I don't know. Uh, if you, you know, put me in a room with 60 random people, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't get along with half of them, at least, and maybe more. I think if we dug deep relationally with each other, we would find out we've got less in common than we think. But the Gospel teaches us that we only require to have one thing in common with each other. That we have decided to follow Jesus. If we are willing to do that, all the other things that divide us, make us different, challenge us, uh, make us frustrated, even make us angry with each other, all of those things become less and less relevant. Because the most relevant thing is that we've decided to follow Jesus and to have the courage to teach that in the face of controversy is Paul's call to the church. <clears throat> Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than singing in the shower makes you a rock star. Sad but true. I'm... I can hit the notes when I'm in the shower. Can't hit them anywhere else. But see, that's the purpose of being the church. What we do here on Sunday morning is singing in the shower. It's to
to practice the faith so that when we go out cleansed in the power of the Gospel, we're able to be rock stars because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And so this morning, three questions for us to consider or three clusters of questions. Does the church matter to you? In what ways? And how do you express that it matters? How ought we, as a local body of believers, best experience and share the renewing life and love of Jesus? Which, by the way, is our congregational mission statement, if you didn't know that. And third, how ought we, as a local body of believers, both honor, that is, worship Jesus, and take Jesus seriously, follow him daily in life. One more thing. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Everyday Church, a book that our deacons are reading and that I would commend to you all. Towards the end of the book, they say this. This is how God defines the good life. The people of God together in community making known the glory of God. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus died. Jesus did not die to save isolated individuals. He died for his church. He died and rose and sent the Spirit to create a people who would be his people and through whom he would reveal his glory. Titus 1, an obscure little backwater corner of the New Testament, a memo from Paul to his subordinate invites us into the most radical journey imaginable. That the church isn't about me being fed, me being taken care of, me being made special. It's about us practicing the faith so that we can follow Jesus daily in life. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is how God defines the good life. People of God together in the neighborhood making known the glory of God. May we have the courage and the capacity and the character to move from the world as it is to the world that God invites us to. Thanks be to God for His Word. Amen.